HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to WineAccess.com for more info. This week on Meet and 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties. There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Philippe Andre. We'll talk to Philippe about champagne, Charles Heitzig, and more. We'll taste the Heitzig Brut and Rosé Reserve champagnes for our weekly wine sip, or maybe during the show. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Philippe Andre grew up around fine dining at his parents' upscale restaurant in Evanston, Illinois. He worked every job in the restaurant, eventually hitting the floor and creating a stellar wine program, becoming their first psalm in 18 years. After almost a decade at the restaurant, Philippe left the family business to pursue a career in wine, first traveling to Oregon, stints at Hart Davis Hart and Moe Hennessy with Southern Glazer. Philippe is the first U.S. brand ambassador for Champagne Charles Heidsick and runs the Grand Crew and Company Consultancy. Welcome to the Grape Na- Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Philippe. Yeah, thank you so much, Sam. It's uh, it's exciting to hear that intro. Um, it's amazing <laughs> how how much time has gone by since the beginning of uh, my days washing dishes in the kitchen. Well, but I want to really talk. 
I want to talk <laughs> about that. Really proud to be here with you, man. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Um, when I say welcome back, Philippe, Philippe uh, was at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival last year, which was right before COVID hit. That was maybe one of the last major events. And yep. we got to sat down with, sit down with Philippe, uh, Ariel Arce, and... Uh, Christian. Christian from A.R. Lenoble, which yeah. was great. That was, that was a nice talk. Um, Philippe, where are you now? Where are we talking to you from? Yeah, so I'm, I'm bunkered up in, in Chicago. Um, you know, it's uh, which is your a, hometown? Hometown. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's been great to be back home. But um, I'm excited to get out and travel when the time is right. But for now, we're yeah. we're, in, uh, we're, we're we're handling uh, business from the HQ here in Chicago. <laughs> All right. All right. So you grew up around wine and restaurants. Yep. What I want you to do is give us a little background on your journey in life and wine that got you, you know, to where you are now, the champagne house. I alluded to a little of it in the <laughs> intro, but I think it there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about, and I want to hear that from you. Yeah, thanks. So um, uh, as you mentioned, I, I grew up in the restaurant business. Uh, my father and mother, mother have a place in Evanston, which is about 20 minutes north of downtown Chicago, um, Oceanique restaurant, focusing on fine dining seafood with a French, uh, French background. My father uh, trained with some incredible French chefs, and that was really how he got his uh, tutelage into cuisine. Uh, he opened his restaurant in 1989, so actually in a few short weeks, it'll be our 32nd birthday as a restaurant, yeah. which is That's a big deal in the business, about. yeah. It is, it is, especially in the fine dining world, so really proud to be a part of that foundation. And um, growing up with a chef or a father, you know, you get, you get brought to a lot of different tables than you probably normally would. Um, so, you know, wine was always at those tables. Uh, we would travel uh, every year, pretty much every summer. The restaurant would close for about a month so that he could go and meet a chef that he uh, wanted to uh, try their food and cuisine. So as I became of age, I got brought to some of those travels. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm you know, meeting uh, Ferran Adria at El Budi and I'm wow. 15 years old, you know, in, in the kitchen. And he's giving us a tour, introducing us to all his chefs. And he doesn't speak in English. So, you know, I had to do my best to follow along. But you know, that's what, I, that's what I experienced as a young adult. And it became reality to me that, I, that wine is something that it was so much a greater part of our business that I had no idea about until I, I fell in love with wine in my uh, early adulthood and um, saw how, how unique it was to connect with other people. Um, so when a lot of my friends were, you know, going to uh, business school, I was focusing on, on hospitality and uh, learning about wine. You know, that was my business school, essentially. Right. And the restaurant always had decent wine, but never really a program, right? Yeah. So, so, we, so, so you when know, you they, really got into it, I mean, you upped that game. Yeah. I, I think when I, when I got handed the keys and I mean, I don't know if they were handed to me, I kind of, you know, stole them and ran with it. And it was one of those things where they said, holy shit, you know, we're onto something here. Um, but but it, I had some great uh, talent on the floor that I learned from about service hospitality. And that inspired me to learn more about wine because I realized that those two things, you know, really need that wine education to follow through. And we'd never had a formal sommelier before and was able to convince my parents to, um, you know, let us invest in a program. And so I was able to, uh, you know, put on the suit and uh, start representing the, the, the seller that my father had invested in for, for decades, frankly. Uh, so How I, old were you? I was, I was 20, I think, 20, yeah, wow. 20 when I first put on the suit. 
um, you know, and, and was trying to figure out a way to, to, to showcase what he loved, which was cuisine and great wine. And it, for him, an experience, the, the right experience, should have high-quality food and obviously high-quality wine. And um, So he's one of the rare chefs that really invested in wine in early early time. And um, so we, we still have wines in our cellar that he bought when the first year that he opened the restaurant, which is incredible to think about. So we've been really fortunate to have a deep cellar. And so I walked in the door having this library at my disposal to learn and more importantly, to share with the guests that wanted to have that type of experience. When, I guess, you know, the way you describe it, you know, if you and I went back in time and walked into the cellar, you know, uh-huh. we'd probably crap in our pants. But when did you realize, you know, because you were 20 and just, you know, getting into the whole wine game and you said there were a couple of people. When did you realize, you know, that it was a pretty well thought out, amazing seller? I mean, I think once I once I became a little older and I was allowed to go to the uh, public tastings, you know, as a formal buyer, I think um, I started tasting through, you know, whatever I could, everything I could to learn. And at some of these really prestigious tastings, for instance, the very famous DRC uh, tasting that happens every year. Right. Um, here in Chicago, we would pretty much only get it once every like five or six years. And I'll never forget, I had to pass up on one year because I was technically not 21 yet. It was <laughs> 10 days Ten days before my 21st birthday, and so my dad went with one of our um, one of our captains, and of course they come back, you know, before service after that, and you know I'm prepping and we're getting ready, and they're like, oh my god, we had all this champagne to start, and the Montrachet people were spitting Montrachet to taste, you know, taste the Tosh, and I was just like, they they painted this picture of this crazy party, which I know there's never a crazy party when there's DRC. It's very formal and structured, right. and I appreciate that they do that. But I think they were giving me a little elbow. But I realized that, you know, um, once I started going to other tastings, that I was, I was working with nicer wines than most of the sommeliers in the city of Chicago, even though I was in Evanston. And this is, you know, pre-social media, so I didn't have anywhere to post pictures of bottles or lineups. But I realized that not everybody's opening Petrus, you know, every month or every week or whatever. And so I was so fortunate to have some of the greatest labels that I was reading about in our cellar. So not only were they on the pages of the books that I was learning from, they were also at my disposal to work with. Yeah, that, that's it's amazing to, uh, you know, Evanston's no slouch town. It's, it's very close to Chicago. It's very upscale, and it's also the home of Northwestern. So, yes. you know, you yes. have a market there that understands that. Quickly take me through when and why you left the family biz <laughs> And the few things you did before, you know, you jumped into the Heidsick thing. Yeah, well, so um, I left the floor in 2013 to pursue a career in wine. And that was a unique step for me because at the time I'd really been focused on hospitality and wine being part of that. But I never really, you know, realized that I, I could find a way or find a place for myself in the wine business. I didn't know what that'd be. And I got an opportunity to go out to Oregon to, uh, to go to the, the, the uh, historic Oregon Pinot Camp. Um, and that really showed me this other side of the world that there are great professionals all across the country who are doing great things that are not just on the floor, but more importantly, either involved in production or distribution or marketing. And so I got a little taste of the world outside and I wanted to see how great it would be. And, um, 
I was able to uh, pick up a gig working Harvest in Oregon as well. So I spent some time out there. Uh, I lost about 30 pounds working Harvest, which was awesome. <laughs> got, got my ass kicked. And, and, you know, I learned a lot about what it takes to make wine. And yeah. uh, I think that's something that I will always carry with me of knowing the effort that it takes to put the juice in the bottle that we all, you know, get a right. chance to sit back and relax and enjoy. But um, I, I had lined up an opportunity to go and work in the auction world. And as you mentioned, Hart Davis Hart. So after Harvest, I came back to Chicago, worked for Hart Davis Hart, focusing on private clients. And really, um, I realized that the great wines that I was working with at, at, in, at my parents' restaurant, um, these were just the same great labels, but they were 30, 40 years older. So it was like, you know, hey, do you want to do a 1910s burgundy tasting? <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's do that. So it, it was a world of auction and more importantly, a world of clients that were looking for um, great service and a connection with somebody that was passionate about wine like themselves with an unlimited supply of resources to acquire those wines. And so it was literally, um, you know, the cutting edge of the, the wine community or wine world, I would say. And it showed me the, the apex of what our, our world can do when most of that is, is behind closed doors or very intimidating to look at um, from afar. So got a chance to, to experience that at a high level and um, then it was, was offered an opportunity to join uh, the team at Moet Hennessy here in Chicago with Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. And um, that was an, a moment for me to focus on getting back to restaurants. You know, so I went from doing really the private client thing to focusing on, on the top 80 restaurants here in Chicago, presenting some of the most powerful brands uh, from the region of Champagne and actually all over the world, frankly. So I got a real understanding of what it was like to to be a supplier, to, to work in distribution as well. And at the same time, I was still learning about what I wanted to do professionally and uh, how I wanted to connect with, um, with the community. So um, Was there, uh, because you worked with them on Moe Hennessy, was that a moment or the moment, you know, where champagne became front and center or <laughs> not, not, it took a little time. No, Champagne actually was always front and center for me. It was the first wine that I truly fell in love with. And I, I remember my first, you know, experience tasting two different Champagnes together by myself. It was the first wine I ever bought for myself um, from the Oceanique cellar. And, um, and so I just, it, it was, it enamored me. And more importantly, I was fascinated by the history and the geography that goes into how the wines are produced. So I've always had Champagne in my heart and it's always been the core basis of what I wanted to learn about a wine and, and, and more importantly it's always in my, been in my uh, my back pocket for the go-to's go when you know when you need something great and special right away champagne's always there and so the opportunity to work with that portfolio and learn from one of the greatest importers uh, you know was was uh, I couldn't say no to that opportunity um, and uh, yeah I learned a whole lot about how they get it done and it's it's really impressive to see it from from that side and that led to your current position yeah, so, so I, I left uh, Moet Hennessy and, and started, uh, I started a, a, a consultancy a few years before when, from my time working with private clients and connecting private clients with, with luxury brands. Um, so I took a year to really uh, invest some time into that business and managed about 18 events across the country for a year. And um, next thing you know, I get a phone call from a, um, a dear friend and, and, and like a brother to me who was a, a former uh, competitor of mine. You know, and we used to we used to compete walking in the same doors of the restaurants and accounts. And he said, Philippe, hey, um, you know, I've, I've got a, 
somebody, I got somebody that's looking for somebody really special. And, um, and I was shocked that he thought of me. And, and next thing you know, I was on the phone with uh, the VP of, uh, of, of EPI Brands, which is uh, the EPI group is ownership, uh, the family owner of uh, Charles Heitzig. And we talked for about an hour about Charles and talked about you know the business and talked about the wine community and the climate. And um, initially, I think it was just a, a you know an introduction of who are you and and how are you doing and what what have you been up to, and then it led into a larger conversation of look we're we're looking to hire somebody to manage this business for the U.S. and we would like you to apply and and next thing you know you know it's um, uh, five months later I moved to New York uh, to to take over the brand for the U.S. and and really see what we could do with Charles. So um, what, what year was that? That was the end of 2018, uh, which okay. feels like a different world. I know. <laughs> I mean, between then and now, everything in between. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what you're doing now, which leads me to what we talked a little about before, but I want you to get into it for a few minutes. Um, yeah. Are you, are you drinking some champagne, by the way? I can't be the only one drinking champagne. All right. So I popped open. So let's talk about it for a minute or two. I popped <laughs> open the Brute Reserve. Okay. And okay. I did what you said. I yep. opened it 15 minutes early. Yes. Um, let, I was going to ask you this at the end of the show, but go through this quickly. When you okay. drink champagne, talk to me about temperature, the type yeah. of glass. Um, you know, you, you told me to open it a few minutes early. Yep. The average guy with a, you know, good champagne, tell me what he should do. Shouldn't be too cold. You know, take it from there. Yeah, I think 55 degrees in a glass that can, you can get your nose in. As long as you can get your nose in there, I think you're good to go. Um, okay, which uh, is not a flute be, really, right? Which is, which is really not a flute. And the reason right. why is it takes us about 20 years to make one bottle of Charles. Now think about that. If you're in the car for a five-hour drive, you want to get out and stretch. So think about 20 years of time. <laughs> uh, that's been, been put into that bottle. So let it out. Let it out. You know, let it out and let it, let it get a little, uh, you know, stretch uh, and get some, some legs under it. And that's really the beauty of our wines is that they are so aromatic and they're so decadent on the nose that you really want to do yourself a favor to, uh, to, to get that experience while you're drinking it. And so that, okay. thing, that, that solves those two problems. And you don't want the wine too cold because then you can't taste it and you can't smell right. it. Right. Yeah. And you don't want it in a champagne flute and give it a little uh, time to breathe. So we're Correct. tasting the Charles Heitzig Brut Reserve. This is a non-vintage, right? Yes. Yes. Non-vintage or multi-vintage. Multi-vintage. All right. This is, this is our flagship wine. So okay. uh, we're talking about 70% of our annual bottling production. And we, may, we do about 80,000 cases. So we're a very, uh, we're, we're like a called a nano house. So, you right. know, there's grower champagnes that are small family growers that grow uh, their grapes and produce. And then there's the houses that they purchase grapes and produce wines that, in their style. We are the nano house. So we're the, the, um, the mosquito to the elephant, but we're so passionate about what we do. There's only one way to make Charles, and it's a lot of time and space. And so fortunately, we have both of those things at our disposal. So let's talk about this specific um, champagne. I'm looking yeah. at the color. You know, we're going to mm -hmm. do a quick evaluation. It's got that beautiful light golden hue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's got nice bubbles, not tiny, not huge. I'd say medium-sized bubbles. Tell me what you get on the nose with this yeah, particular. On the nose, I mean, for me, it's right away this brush, this this freshness of uh, of, of, of of wet um, citrus, uh, definitely some some chalkiness. Um, and then a, a touch of brioche, 
a croissant. Um, I often find time, sometimes some apricot. Um, and then, uh, and then you know, the nose is so floral too. You know, there's these white and yellow flowers that definitely come out in the glass. Um, and maybe a hint of some blueberry uh, every now and then. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree with all of that. You know, and some, that bready, toasty, you know, some exotic fruits along with the blueberry. The mouthfeel to me is, you know, pretty full, you know, medium, medium plus, kind of plush. Very nice. Yeah, it should taste like velvet, like a velvet robe. Yeah, um, it, is, it is very plush. Now, I'm, I'm on, the, on the palate, are you getting similar descriptors as on the nose, or you add stuff in on the palate? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it becomes much more powerful on the palate, in my opinion. Um, and, and, and I think that's why I wanted you to pour that wine and open it a little bit earlier, is that these wines have been uh, you know, in the bottle not only for a few years, but they've spent... Uh, decades in the tank before we put it in the bottle to blend. So when we when we open those wines up, just like we would, uh, you know, an older Bordeaux or an older Cabernet, um, you see this decadence that comes out. And on the palate, I get a mixture of dried apricot, you know, some lemon peel, some lemon curd, uh, definitely a hint of yogurt, um, you know, some yeah. pastry cream. That um, creaminess, so, for sure. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we love this decadence that is can only be achieved with these older wines and long aging in our cellar with the yeast in the bottle. Those two so, things, when they collide, it's, it's magic. So here's the beauty. You, you know, yeah. you mentioned that there's a pretty decent bottle output, you know, and that comes along with uh, house champagne. Um, the quality, the value is crazy. Not yes. to box you in the corner because the price could vary a buck or two here. But the range of this champagne retail is approximately what? Yeah, we're usually on the shelf around sixty dollars. So you know, yeah, fifty nine, I mean, sixty five dollars. You're getting and... you know a nice you know high end <laughs> champagne for uh, that kind of value, which is yeah. really nice. All Absolutely. right, so go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say is if you guys ever find a bottle of Charles, turn it around. And the reason why is on the back label we tell a lot of information as to how long your bottle spent in the cellar and when it was finished and removed from the cellar. So we we not only just have the discouragement date, we also have the date that it entered the cellar. And um, so that gives you a lot of understanding of what bottle you have in front of you. And as I've traveled, um, I found a variance in those dates from, from, from city to city. So uh, when you go out to the store, turn around and see what you got. I've had some friends send me pictures of bottles that were, you know, absolutely historic and just absolute legend sitting on the self shelf for 50, 60 That's bucks. Right. So <laughs> I, I have the bottle in my hand and you had mentioned to me earlier in an email, yeah. you know, take a look. Yeah. So my bottle is a 2016 when it entered the cellars and it was disgorged, you know, in 19. But to your point, you know, if you go into stores, you may see some interesting numbers. All right. We're yeah. going to taste the uh, Brut Reserve, the Brut Rosé, you know, yes. towards the end of the show. And we'll wrap both okay. of those up. Um, I wanted to ask you how your life is during the pandemic. You know, obviously, mm. as an ambassador travel sounds like it's important um yeah you, you know we, you we, know we, how has it affected your life you know you philippe and you know the, yeah. the job well my wife sees a lot more of me these days, <laughs> which which uh has been a really great thing um i would say I, I don't know if her answer is the same but i hope it is um but you know it, it's helped me to realize that our community is a resilient one uh wine lovers and food lovers we're still looking for these experiences. And so I've been really fortunate to connect with folks um, through last year that I'd never met virtually. 
And, you know, and that's been really a, a, an incredible highlight of the year for me is that we can still reach our community and we can still be very productive in terms of, you know, getting great wines into people's glasses. We just got to be a little more creative. And so working with, you know, production partners who are doing virtual events or working with collector groups that want to have an experience at a dinner, you know, while they're in the safe space and still have that experience partnered with the chef. You know, we can do these things and I'm so proud to be part of that community because, you know, we need those those highlights and those moments more than ever. And um, so that that really was a was a special thing to see our community rally behind, uh, you know, what we're what we love and more importantly, how to connect with folks in a different way. So even though you couldn't really have the face to face human touch, there was an opportunity to connect with a lot of people. Correct. Oh yeah, absolutely, and, and, and frankly, it's it's there's an unlimited potential of connection, and I, I showed I showed everybody right away. In April, I hosted a, a virtual Zoom tasting with our chef Takav, and again, something that had never been done before. And I just posted it on my Instagram. I said, "Hey, if you guys are free, join us. You know, log on." And we had about 130 people show up throughout the course of the two-hour chat and tasting, and it was fascinating because it was like, "Wow, okay, we're onto something here." That like there's this community that is interested about us, interested about how we make our wines, and more importantly, wants to stay connected with other people in this time. And I think about a lot of my friends that are single and they're, they're in their, you know, their respective places and you know, they can't interact with other people the way that we used to. And right. um, so I think about those, those folks and you know, if we can open a bottle of champagne virtually, you know, that, that just means the world to some people. So I was really proud to be a part of that. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, what do you think the future's gonna bring? I mean, what do you, I know what we're all hoping for, but what, what do you sense is going to happen, you know, as the winter passes, the spring comes around? I mean, yeah, it, well, it's, it's uh, hard let me, to let say. Me grab my, I, I asked our, our chef to our, our winemaker to send me his crystal ball. So I have it here under the table okay. um, because he's a bit of a wizard when it comes to uh, judging wines and how they will age. So now that I have access to this, the crystal ball from Charles, you know, I'm going to say is that I think people are going to drink more and celebrate more as uh, time comes by. It's just a matter of when and how safe. I think um, we've learned a lot about how to operate and how to operate safely uh, last year. And so now it doesn't seem as daunting to, you know, do these virtual events, to organize them, to plan them, to handle the logistics of them. But more importantly, I know, Sam, when we get a chance to party together in person again, it's going to be one hell of a party. And I think there's going to be some big bottles. So I think... 2021 is going to be the year of the big bottle. So magnums in large formats. Uh, I think that's I, you know what? I think you bring up a good point. I think <laughs> you brought up two good points. I think people are getting good at virtual, you yeah. know, so why not drink? And here's a way to do it with your friends. And I think, you know, when things loosen up a little, it's going to be party time. And, you know, you're not taking it lightly. You're doing, you know, magnum. So I'm yep. with you on that. I mean, that's a, that's a good outlook. <laughs> You know, yeah. that, that's pretty positive, and I think that's the direction we're heading in. Um, on a slightly different note on that, you know, I dedicated a lot of shows in 2020 to discussing diversity, equality, and harassment in the wine business. Yeah, um, appreciate that. I know you're on the board of the United Sommeliers Foundation. Now, wasn't, wasn't that a creation, you know, as a reaction to the current times? Am I correct yeah. in that? Yeah, so we, we were founded. Um, in, tell in tell the, me a little about it. 
Yeah, so the United Sommeliers Foundation is a group of sommeliers that, that, that really came together in a difficult time for our community. Um, uh, this was founded because COVID-19 has shut a lot of restaurant doors, and most of the doors that, that are shut, they've, they've had to let their, their, their wine service you know, professionals go. And even though they've been able to reopen their doors in some type of capacity, a lot of those wine professionals were never called back. So we're seeing it across the industry, not just at the restaurant level, also on the sales side. Um, and so we, we really said, okay, we got to come together here to support this community because if we're not taking care of Psalms now, we're going to miss out on the Psalms that need to be in our community when we are able to reopen our doors. And so we really wanted to think about how we can help them get through this. At the time, uh, you know, we didn't know um, much of how long this was going to last, but here we are into 2021. I think this is going to be going, you know, for much longer throughout this year, yes. unfortunately. So we've been really fortunate to be um, connecting, you know, suppliers, importers, uh, private private collectors with the sommelier community to support them financially. And um, we, at this point, we've we've almost raised a million dollars since April wow. last year. Um, wow, that's significant. So we're significant. really proud of the response from the community. And those dollars have gone directly to sommeliers. We've now funded, I think, almost 800 sommeliers um, to help them pay their rent, to pay their medical bills, to pay groceries, car notes, um, whatever we can to support them in their time. I mean, we, we're really proud to, to be connected with that community because we know that we need them when the time is right to come back. So um, that's been if, incredible and really special to be a part of in this time. If people want to get more information about it or maybe support um, the foundation, where's the best place to go? Yeah, unitedsommeliers.org uh, is our, our, our website, um, or it's, it's in my Instagram. I'm Neek Sam on Instagram. You can find me. You can find our president, uh, Madam President, Christy Norman, um, right. our, our uh, vice, our, our, our uh, treasurer, which is uh, DJ Vitamix, uh, our, our buddy <laughs> out in Napa. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're a community of sommeliers in almost every major market around the country. That we yes. are banding together to, to, in support of our our, uh, our profession and the it's future a, of our profession. Yeah, it's a it you know from everything I see, it's a wonderful organization. All right, you ready to talk about champagne? I yeah, well, ask one, one other thing. I know you asked about diversity, and I think diversity is a, is a really important t topic to touch on. And so, obviously, we had the pandemic to deal with. We had a lot of other things to deal with this year, but I'm so proud of the community rallying behind. You know, and, and, and your support as well of showcasing the the different colors you know behind the glasses and, and a lot of folks that are that are involved in our industry and so I'm just so proud to be you know surrounded by people that are really looking forward to change and at the more more importantly looking forward to the future of of our community and our industry because um, you know we we have a lot of great talented folks that I don't I think have been overlooked for for many years and it's so it's so incredible to see. Um, more of the folks get the attention that they deserve and more importantly to open the doors for the next generation of the up-and-coming Psalms and wine professionals that, that want to join this community and more importantly are the community you know I, I agree so much and you know I was deciding whether how much to get into that with you but I felt that during the summer with all the events, it was hard to talk about anything but what was going mm -hmm. on around the yeah. country and what was going on in the industry. Yeah. So I really kind of dug in and got people that, you know, were part of that, you know, and it's wonderful. And, 
you know, one of the questions was, you know, has it prompted change? Is it still going? And, you know, in a way you answered it because the creation of United Sommeliers Foundation, you know, was a reaction to that. So, I mean, you know, a job well done there. Um, I just hope the passion continues and that the momentum keeps rolling. And I know you do too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we've got, we've come a long way and, I, and I've had some, some great mentors or people that I looked up to in my early days. Um, and without them, I don't think I would be able to push to where I am and to push for opportunities that I was able to achieve. And I think what I think about every day is how can I continue to push so that there is the next, you know, the next up and coming Psalm that wants to do something a little bit different than the way that maybe some folks have done it in the past or more importantly, how can we show some of these more really, really uh, um, important leading brands and wineries that you know it's okay to be different and it's okay to be yourself while presenting your wine. And I think um, you know that that for me was is really the barrier that I want to break down. And um, in many ways, in my current role, I, I have I, I'm I'm the first uh, uh, champagne ambassador, uh, uh, you know, African American champagne ambassador in the history of our industry. And and it's 2021 now. And you think about it, how long it's taken to get there. I don't I don't. I, you know, I hope that we have 20 more next year and the year after that. But we have to continue to break down those barriers and showcase, you know, how um, how unique and diverse our community is. So if I can, you know, break one down, then I hope that you know someone else can break another. And the next thing you know, we've got 15 of those barriers broken, and um, and we've we've created a more wholesome community for everyone. Uh, and and that is really truly special to be a part of. You know. I agree so much, and the cool thing about it is you take sort of this old state beverage like champagne, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, and you take a European company, you know, a French company, and they kind of look forward and they hire a young and in a complimentary way, funky African-American guy who really creates, you know, the right persona for them at the right time. And I think that'll get noticed, to your point, and I think it'll, you know, influence. Um, I hope people. so. I hope everyone's watching because, yeah. you know, we're, we're gonna and, and, going to keep going. You know, <laughs> at the end of the show, I'll ask you where people can follow you. And once I can get people yeah. to follow you, they'll understand, you know, what's going on <laughs> with you and the brand and all that. Um, Philippe, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Philippe Andre. Philippe is, as we mentioned, the U.S. ambassador um, to Champagne Charles Heitzig. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, champagne. We're going to talk about Heidsick, and we're going to talk about a bunch of other things. I want to welcome a new sponsor to the Grape Nation, Wine Access. Whether you're a beginner or a wine connoisseur, Wine Access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy wines you like. It doesn't matter whether you're looking to spend a few bucks or drop a lot, Wine Access will take the guesswork out of choosing a great bottle. And the reason is, is they're all about curation. Their team tastes over 20,000 wines per year. They only select the finest wines that exceed expectations and over-deliver on price. I've talked about this on the show over and over, that let the experts point you towards the best wines. Let a guy like Philippe tell you, go into a good retailer, wine importers know. So let Wine Access you know, help you uh, pick the best wines. They have all the knowledge, connection stories to point you to the best wines that fit your taste. 
You know, for them, it takes decades to cultivate relationships with under-the-radar winemakers and iconic producers. Um, so let their professionals unlock um, access to the most out-of-reach wines. That's why they're called Wine Access. So discover your new favorite bottle with Wine Access. They have an exclusive offer available for our Grape Nation listeners. 20% off your first order. Just go to the special URL, wineaccess.com slash Nation, and the discount will be applied at checkout. There's some incredible wines waiting for you. They also have a wine club, which they'll do all the heavy lifting and pick some great wines for you. So go to wineaccess.com slash Nation for 20% off. Go now and check them out. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Philippe Andre. Philippe yes. is the U.S. brand ambassador for Charles Heitzig. All right, let's talk about champagne. You have Easy. said that it's the best damn wine, dollar for dollar, <laughs> you could drink for any occasion. I yep. agree. That's why I brought that quote up. Um, I want you to explain two things. You know why that's the case. And there's something that you had mentioned about the complexities of growing and making champagne versus still wine, you know, all mm -hmm. the blending and the vintages, you know, talk to me about those couple of things. All right, then we're, we're going to get, we're going to get, we're going to get, it's going to get a little closer now here. And, and I've okay. had a couple sips of, of champagne now. So, you know, the, the mood is, is definitely set. You know, the tables are going the candles are lit and um, this is where it gets really. Wait, intimate. wait, you hear that noise? <laughs> Filling my glass up. Go ahead. There it is. Okay. So here's the first thing you mentioned about the, the value proposition of champagne. And I've always, as a sommelier, I've, you know, I'm always searching for the wine to pair with every dish. And as a psalm, we all know uh, that in our back pockets, you pull out a, a, a nice glass of champagne, and it's going to probably go with anything chef has on the plate. The reason being is you've got acidity, you've got complexity, you got the vibrancy from the bubbles, um, and it works uh, literally 10 times out of 10. And it's so <laughs> fun to showcase champagne with, with unique flavors. Uh, I love showcasing it with, with uh, spicy food, with uh, fast food even, just to be a little more playful and a little more accessible. Um, and at the same time, you can bring it to the Michelin-starred table, no problem, and showcase every course with a different champagne. Um, so it's such a versatile wine. But as we were talking earlier about the, the time, um, for me as a Psalm, I learned that, um, you know, for me, the bar of a, of a high quality wine was, can it stand the test of time in the cellar? And here we are with Charles, we have to do that. The only way to make our wine the way we do is we have to age our wines in the tank. Um, so for us, the, the patience, the dedication to our craft is the most important thing that we can do in our cellar. Uh, our grape growers and our farmers that we work with they understand that, so they know the relationship that's needed. We only have to use uh, the most pristine juice possible in order to withstand that test of time. We can't, we can't play around, <laughs> if, I guess right. you could say, because if we find out 10 years later that we did, it's going to be a hard lesson to learn. And so at Charles, that foundation really started um, in the 60s and 70s, and we carry on the tradition to this day. So for us, as I mentioned, we're a nano house. We're about a fraction of the size of most champagne houses out there. And so we're really proud to continue this tradition on this small, intimate scale because of the time it takes to make our bottles, um, there's really no one else that can, that can touch us. 
and it shows in the glass. And I hope you're seeing that today, Sam. So I for am. me, that value is unreal. When you think about $60 for a bottle of wine that took 20 years to make, there's no other wine in the world that has that same, I think, uh, presentation right off the bat. If you just run the numbers of time to production and to price for a bottle, I, I don't know anybody else who can touch us. I mean, there's a few producers, maybe, um, but, but on that scale and, and in terms of, 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 of a consistency and approachability, I mean, aside from fortified wines, we're it. So anytime you see you know, champagne on the label, and especially when you see Charles Heidzik on the label, you know there's something special regardless of the price point. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, you know, when you talk about regular wine, you talk about, you know, that single vintage from that year. Maybe mm-hmm. they're blending different lots or whatever. I mean, you're talking about, you know, I, I mean, walk me through this for a second. You're blending, yeah. in many cases, three different types of grapes. You're yep. blending current vintage plus vintages all the way back. I mean, yep. that's a much bigger game than, you know, just, you know, uh, annual right. vintage. Are you, are you right? ready? I'm going to blow your mind here, Sam. You ready for this? Our winemaker, Cyril Brunt, he makes 280 wines every year. Why? Every year. Explain. The reason being is if he's going to cook in the kitchen, and we call him the mm-hmm. chef de cop, because chef needs to have the ingredients. And he will look through those 280 wines and he'll find, you know, about uh, 30 to 40 of those that become the base of that year's blend. And then he's selecting about 20 to 30 reserve wines that have been aged in our cellar in tank from previous vintages to become the final blend of the Brut Reserve. So that is our flagship wine. Those other wines that he made go into our reserve tanks to be aged for future blending bottles every year. So, you know, again, think about this, this, this wizardry here. Most wineries make, let's say they make uh, 20 wines every year. They make the wine, vinify it, bottle it, sell it. We, um, we make a lot of wine and then we, we sit on it and wait till it's ready to be right. used in the blend and then we release it. And, and again, that's a whole, that's, it's just so completely backwards from the rest of the world, but also very backwards from the rest of Champagne, which is usually they're taking a few vintages together to create their non-vintage expression, whereas we're taking about 20 vintages and a, a vast range of aged wines, whereas most reserve wine in the region of Champagne is about one or two years old. We're using average age 10 years old. So that is the difference between us and some of our neighbors. And also, we're using a high percentage of reserve wine, where most houses will use 20 to 30% reserve wine. We are always a minimum 40% reserve wine in our flagship wine. And that's, again, uh, you know, something completely different than our neighbors and the rest of the world. I like that we're getting a little nerdy on that, but that just <laughs> that justifies, you know, the depth of the wines and, yep. you know, the, the, the blending. That justifies you know what you're getting at that price point i mean you know just how deep you're going um i was curious about a couple of things and then i want to talk specifically about the brand and all of that um is is champagne starting to skew younger i mean it 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 always had that you know reputation as being you know, a little stodgy and celebratory, which I want to talk to you about too. It shouldn't just be mm-hmm. celebratory. But mm-hmm. I know a lot of sommeliers are putting it on the wine programs and all that. Is it starting to show growth, you know, in the younger markets? 
I think it I think it is. And we, we proved that this past year when everybody was stuck at home, you see people logging on to tastings, you see people buying wines and posting them on Instagram. And I think it is. I think people are starting to realize that champagne is much greater than just a celebratory wine. And as you, you know, you take the bottle and you take it out of the flute and you put it into a proper wine glass, like a burgundy glass or a, you know, a Zalto stem that people would normally put their, you know, their first growth Bordeaux in or right. their cults, you know, cult Syrahs from, you know, th these are the things that I'm so excited about because I knew them 15 years ago. And I was nerdy about, you know, single vintage, single vineyard and single vintage champagnes before people were really talking about them and before they were with the younger community of my age. And I was telling my friends, you know, like, hey, check this out. And they're all like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about, man. And, and so it was hard. But now I'm seeing that community rally behind champagne as a, uh, a wine rather than just a celebration. And right. in many times I'm presenting our wines at Charles as wine. And I can't tell you how many times people would say, well, I thought you guys made champagne. And I'm like, yes. Right. <laughs> it know, is wine. We, you have it to is remind wine them. from the champagne region. Absolutely. Right. So when you take a bottle like Charles and you put it into a wine glass, you unlock, you know, this next level essentially of, you know, um, of the experience. And it really becomes a true wine lover's experience. And we'll say all the time that we're the champagne house for the wine lover. You know, that's that's really who we are um, because that's who we are as a people. I mean, we absolutely adore Burgundy. We adore Barolo. We adore Bordeaux. We adore Napa. We, you know, um, tell us tell us a great wine producer out there and I guarantee you that we enjoy it. You know, and, and that's, I think yeah. that's the beauty of it is that we do this because we're wine lovers first. You can't make a wine like Charles unless you love it because right. it takes too damn long to make if you, you know, if you were just out here to, uh, you know, to flip bottles every now and then. And that's just, well, that's the difference. The commitment and the amount of wines and past vintages, you know, Correct. affirms that. Um, let's talk about Champagne Charles Heitzig. Yes. You know, I hate asking this question, but, you know, it begs to be asked, you know, just so people know. Um, every house has a style or a philosophy towards making their champagne. Mm -hmm. We described, you know, pretty well how it's made. You know, the blending, the mixed vintages, um, the base and all of that. But what, what can you describe that style or yeah. is there, yeah. a, talk to me about that. I, I mean, I know we touched on a lot of these things already in terms of just like how it's made, but Charles is uh, the most wine, uh, you know, wine or onological experience you can get from a champagne, in my opinion. It has this decadence. It has this, uh, on not only the palate, but also on the nose, as I mentioned. And that depth of the, the influence on your palate after you've taken a sip truly is the seal. You know, it's the seal of this is a unique wine and a unique experience that you cannot find really anywhere else. And I think that's the house style of Charles is this decadence and nuance uh, and precision all in the same package. And um, it's truly incredible to see our wines uh, get into the hands of the wine lovers and sommeliers that, you know, maybe haven't tried Charles in, in years or ever right. at all. Um, right. So for instance, those are pretty US, damn good descriptors, you know, the decadence <laughs> yeah, yeah. and all that. So yeah, you, I mean, I, we tasted I, the Brut Reserve, and you said uh, that's you know the lead dog. That's the most yeah. bottles. But you make about the house makes about what eight champagnes, vintage we, and non-vintage. 
we, we make about six different wines, uh, and, and of course they're not always bottled because in Champagne it's a very hellish place to make wine. Uh, we're right. really far north, we're north of Paris by about an hour. Um, not too far, but when you look at how the region is, um, it's cool, it's damp, um, you know, it's not the most uh, beautiful place. It's, it's nowhere near like Napa. Those guys in right. Napa have it easy, man. Every year they have it like, like clockwork. Um, so, so that's why when you see a vintage on a bottle of champagne, you know it's something special. And so for us at Charles, we, we really focus on those years when it is insanely special, not only in the, in the vineyard, but in the cellar. Because as I mentioned, we have to use these reserve wines that span a decade or two to make our Brut Reserve flagship non-vintage bottling. But now if there's a special year, but we don't have enough reserve wine in the tanks for future vintages or future bottlings, we can't declare and make a vintage bottling because we have to really? pay respect to the flagship right. wine. So you have to it, stay consistent to what you're doing. Skit. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it that's... really is about integrity. And, and it's about, you know, when you see a vintage on a bottle of Charles, you know the star is truly aligned, not only in the, in the vineyard, but also in the cellar. So currently, if you went on the website or you traveled through a bunch of stores, what are some <laughs> of the vintage years you would see? Yeah, so um, we make uh, two vintage wines that are, uh, uh, one is a Brut, which is a blend of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, which is a gold, uh, gold label on it. Our current release vintage is 2012, which just arrived here to the U.S. Uh, a few months ago. Before that was the, the uh, Instant Legend 2008. Uh, before that was the 2006 vintage. So you see, we went from 6 to 8 to 12, and we right. also make a vintage rosé, which we did a 2006 and then a 2005, um, and, and that is a very unique bottling. And then we have what's called our, our tête de cuvée, or um, some people would call it a prestige wine. But for us, it's truly a unicorn. I'd like to say it's like the uh, it's like the Dark Knight or the Batman of the Champagne region. Well, we call what makes wine, it that? We we call it the Blanc de Millionaire. That's a, that's what it's called. It's a black label. Um, it's only made when there are five vineyard sites that we have access to come online in the right manner. And what that means is, is again, we're, we're talking about five individual unicorn wines have to be perfect in the vineyard and then in the cellar. And that's when our chef de cave can make that bottling. And uh, that is our vintage Blanc de Blanc, called Blanc de Millenaire. And our current vintage on that is 2006, which was also just released last year. Right. Um, quickly tell me about, is there a... Um, uh, interest towards and a commitment to sustainability, organics, that type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are we are uh, we're the house, so we do purchase uh, you know quite a bit of our, our grapes. But we've had long-standing contracts and relationships with our grower partners for generations. When I was at the winery in 2019, I got invited to uh, to host a new um, generation. It was actually the fifth generation family grower partner of Charles. His family had been selling grapes to Charles for five generations from the, uh, the village of Bouzy, and so beautiful Pinot Noir. And um, it was incredible to see this torch being handed to him as the next generation. But more importantly, that meeting was about celebrating him and, and his neighbors that also we purchased grapes from, but to really show them the commitment we have to the future of, of not only their property, but also the, the world. And so, you know, encouraging and supporting our growers to practice, you know, organic or biodynamic farming practices is something that Charles is really committed to over the last 10 years. Right. Um, and that's something that 
the sustainability is important for us going forward. We can't make a wine like Charles without healthy property. You know, the vineyards have to be healthy in order for these grapes to last the test of time in the cellar before they go into the bottle. Right. That's good to hear that. Um, a quick pivot. How important do you think you could have created your image or pushed the champagnes without social media? I mean, how important is social media these days? Uh, honestly, it's, it's, my, it's our, it's our um, let's see, if, if Charles was my heart, I would say social media is my, are my lungs. Um, Could you do it without it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not possible. It's absolutely not possible. Without it's crazy media. how the world has changed, right? It has. It has. And, and I'll tell you, Sam, I, I think I was a little ahead of the curve on that one. I, I remember many years ago, you know, um, hearing to, to really um, tone down things on social media from, from previous roles that I was in and to really scale right. back my time on it. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of that work and maybe some of the, the stubbornness that I had back then has paid off in a way that we're seeing that we need to connect with our community in a unique and personal way. And I think that's what I try to do every time that I, you know, post something or share something that's going on. It's because I think the world needs to know about it. And I learned I, I, early on <laughs> that a simple hashtag can connect us with somebody, you know, across the country uh, or in a town that we've never been to. But we have something connected that connects us, which is this beautiful uh, component of wine and wine lovers. We're everywhere. I, I agree. You know, it's a little sad, though. Because of the pandemic, guys like you are not traveling. There's no events. <laughs> People are not in restaurants, you know, yeah. taking snaps of bottles and dishes and all of that. You know, I'm able to scroll through my Instagram feed in like one third the time, you know, a year ago. But mm -hmm. I, I'm happy for you because I think you get it and you use social media, you know, to brand yourself and to brand Heidsick. And it's, you know, refreshing to see that. Um, Thank you. We're going to do the wine list in a second. But I wanted to ask you this one question because this may be something you and I share. Um, what champagne pairs with a aged Cuban cigar or you know a, a high end, you know, like a, a David off yeah. or a Padron yeah. or something? Oh, yeah. What? We're, tell me, give language. me a pairing on that. <laughs> well, for me, I, I've been a, an avid uh, cigar collector now for about seven years, and I've been to Cuba. Um, I actually. Uh, Help wrangle a group of sommeliers and wine wine professionals to Cuba, and we all brought wine. and And I'll tell you about ninety percent of the wine that was brought down to Cuba was champagne. And the reason <laughs> being is, again, it's the perfect wine, in my opinion, for that experience. If you're going to have a you know a sit down moment or uh, you know sharing a moment with some friends, when you have a cigar, some people have never had a cigar. It is a very weighty kind of um, you know slowed down process, and I think. For me with cigar, I think about 45 minutes to an hour having a cigar. And if you're gonna sit down for an hour and have a cigar with somebody, and I know the classic pairing, which is scotch, whiskey, or rum, uh, you know, bourbon. Um, and I totally respect those folks that are passionate about it. But if I have three pours of, of scotch in, in an hour, there's no way I'm getting up from where I was sitting. So Good for point. me, I get really thirsty when I smoke. And so to have a glass of champagne that is so vibrant on the palate, it's so refreshing, it's uplifting. The champagne is a wine that makes you smile instantly when you taste it on your palate. I couldn't think of a better pairing to have with this beautiful, earthy, you know, taste of terroir that comes out of the cigars. Um, so for me, I think, honestly, rosé champagne is the best pairing you could ever try 
with a you know a beautiful aged Cuban cigar, like you just said. Um, I think it's something that everyone needs to try at least once. Um, it may not be for everyone, and I understand that, but for me as an avid cigar lover and obviously a, a fanatic when it comes to wine and champagne, I think it's something that everybody needs to try at least once. All right, so I agree. So now you dropped a little knowledge on anybody for all you uh, cigar yeah. smokers. Switch it up a little and try champagne. All right, Philippe, we're going to do the wine list. I need. We have about seven minutes left in the show okay. to do the wine list and to uh, taste the rosé. So I want you to buzz through this. I'm going to ask you five questions. Don't dwell on them. You know, whatever you know is on your mind. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? Have you changed seasons beyond always tasting champagne? You know, what else are you throwing over that tongue? Yeah, the most wine I drink outside of champagne is going to be Burgundy, so white and red, and then I would go to Riesling. I love aged wine, so anything old, anything older, 10, 15 years, I'm drinking okay. it. Um, and I absolutely adore Oregon, as I mentioned. I spent some time out there, so anything Oregon, Burgundy, or Riesling, it's in my glass other than champagne. I think Oregon's hitting a stride like crazy. I agree yep. with you on all of that. Yep. Um, what's Philippe's favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you eat every night, every <laughs> month, but what's that like, you know, you do it every now and then, and you go, oh, man, this works. Man, honestly, I, I'm a big fan of fried chicken sandwiches, and so I couldn't think of anything greater than, you know, a glass of champagne, as I mentioned, rosé champagne right. and a fried chicken sandwich. Popeye's fried chicken sandwich. Everybody's talking about it. Pour yourself a glass of champagne and have it and enjoy it. I mean, you, you know, the sandwich is five bucks. You know, split I, it a little and enjoy That's a it. great one, man. Bring a little class to that sandwich. <laughs> yeah, but let's go. Let's but even, go. Fried, even fried chicken alone and fried food is in champagne. All right. Yes. Do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar it could be chicago it could be new york because you spend time here your travels give yeah. me a couple of places that do it well you walk in the vibe is good the knowledge mm. is good the people mm. are good selection new york is new york is a dangerous place for the wine lover because there there's a great place every corner but my, my one of my absolute favorite places is this little place called norita it's in the east village it's uh you know family owned and operated chef owned and operated um, it's basically an elevated Hawaiian restaurant uh, by some two, two X per se vets. And they've created this amazing uh, uh, style of, uh, not style, it's, it's amazing community of wine lovers that come together around awesome food. And they have incredible fried chicken. So I guarantee you that you could try some fried chicken there and, and you'll be set straight. But look at the wine list and it is incredible. It's older wines, very affordable, very approachable in an epic list of Rieslings, which I told you I absolutely adore. Right. So if I'm in so, New York, it's Norita. Absolutely. So first time ever anybody's mentioned that. You know, we, we, <laughs> we get all the obvious guys, which they're all great, but that's a good one. I'm going to leave it at that one because I want to focus on that one. Yep. All right. Fourth question. Favorite all-time wine. The original intention of the question was, hey, Philippe, what's the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? The question has morphed into, what's that wine that changed your life or made an impression or did something to you? What's that important wine? Mm. You know, I would, I would say um, I, my, my father is a big fan of Burgundy. And so really, really proud to, um, you know, have that experience as a younger age. And um, I would say it's probably um, my first time trying uh, a DRC with him. And uh, I'll never forget, it was a, it was a Thanksgiving a few, uh, many years ago now. 
and we opened a bottle of 1979 Romani St. Vivant. And uh, <laughs> for folks that, that don't know Burgundy, we're talking with a very specific you know, producer that makes really the, the tip of the spear, Pinot Noir. Um, 79, not a, not a great vintage for Burgundy, but when you're right. talking about the best producer, you really can't go wrong. And, and again, this wine was probably uh, 20, 20, oh no, 30 years old at the time, if not a little bit younger. But what was so funny is we're opening this wine for, for Thanksgiving dinner, and my mother is an incredible cook, and we literally asked her to halt, halt dinner so that we could drink this wine because it didn't need anything else. It right. became the experience. So it was so floral and fragrant and decadent. Um, that was an incredible experience to be able to share with my parents and, and our family and, that, and really just think about it, you know? That's the way you answer that question. <laughs> By the way, I, I mean, everything but the wine is a great story, but then throw in that it's DRC, so it's a killer story, all right? Everybody, all right. everybody talks about DRC when it's I know, wine, no, but know? I like the story Sorry. better than the wine. I mean, I, I get it <laughs> yeah, and all that. Yeah. All right, last question. You should know yeah. this because you've been around. My kids are in their 20s. You know, they can't show up at a party with crappy supermarket wine. They can't give a gift of crappy wine. Um, but they don't want to spend 40, 50 bucks. Give me your yep. best wine recommendations for around 15, 20 bucks. Give me a red and a white. You can give me category like Muscadet. Oh. You can give me sparkler, you know, whatever. What, what comes to mind? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I'm a predominantly, I drink white wine mostly. And I think about... Uh, my boy John House at Ovum Cellars uh, in Oregon. Him and his wife Senia make incredible white wine for a very reasonable, affordable okay. price point. OVUM? OVUM. They make a wine called Big Salt, and it's okay. I believe it's like $17.99. It's crazy, crazy good. Um, that's, that's where I'm going for a white. Um, Give me a red. Red? Um, let's, talk about, let's talk about Spain. Um, I think Spain, for me, you got killer Riojas that are under $30 with some age. Maybe maybe even like um, uh, Crianza, uh, for instance. Um, uh, who, who are those guys? The Tondonia. I just had a 2010 from Via them. Tondonia? Yeah, they make, they make a Crianza that is yeah. like incredible for the price, you know? And, Their wine's um, not that expensive anyway, even, you know. No. I mean, it's, it's more no. than fifteen twenty, but it's not crazy. I'll give, you, I'll give you one more red that I'm thinking about, which is Chateau Moussard makes an entry-level bottling, which completely overperforms uh for its price point um all right so those are all good saying. ones now i didn't mention but i post all of these i'm gonna post <laughs> your wine list answers because okay. i do for every guest every week and i'm gonna post the wine we drink we have a few minutes to talk about the Heidsick brute rose reserve yes. Um, it's my baby. I just poured that in front of me tell me a little about this wine it's always fun to pop out a rose Yes. So we, we talked a little bit about rosé, and actually I'm drinking rosé right now too, which, you know, um, it, for me it's the most complex expression that champagne has um, on the nose and on the palate. The reason being is we're adding in another wine, essentially, to create this experience. And um, there is a process of maceration that you'll see, but at Charles, because we age our wines for so long, we use the assembly or the blending process. So essentially, we're making our wine like we normally would for the Brut Reserve. However, we make an additional wine of Pinot Noir that is red, just like you would in Burgundy. And we blend in about four to 5% at the time of bottling, so it can be aged on the lees with yeast in the bottle with that red Pinot Noir in there. And this gives you this 
Um, it's like truffles on top of the risotto, man. It's this decadent uh, <laughs> component that you you just can't really express. And, and, and it reminds me, you close your eyes and you, it almost smells like you're drinking a red wine or like a red burgundy. Um, you get the berry components as opposed to the citrus. So let's we talk about, about it. Earlier. So on the yeah. color, you get this cool, nice, light pink. Yeah, um, yeah. You got these nice, delicate bubbles, I see. Even a little more delicate than the uh, mm -hmm. reserve. I don't know why. On the nose... Well, I'll tell I you get, why. I get a little on, red it's fruit. On it's on Lee's much longer. <laughs> uh, that's why. Tell me what you get on the nose. I get red fruit yeah. and I get a little of that strawberry, yep. you know, a little baking spice. Tell me yes. what you get. Yeah, I, I get a, a hint of strawberry jam. Um, I get definitely the baking spice notes, the croissant, the nutmeg is there. I get some uh, more like red apple on the nose as opposed to the citrus that we were talking about earlier. And it definitely this um, this like wet bunch of like berry bunch. So whereas it's cassis or blackberry, right. I just kind of get this component on the nose. Um, and for this sure. also this also has a wonderful mouth feel. You know, very yeah. powerful actually. You know, yeah. it's in your mouth and you feel it, which I love. Yes. Um, yes. Let's talk about palate again. I'll ask you: Do the nose descriptors translate to the uh, palate, and is there anything added? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, again, we're talking a little bit more of a um, creamier component that's added. So I think of my childhood a lot when I'm tasting, and I loved eating the fruit-the-bottom cups of yogurt when I was little. Yeah, so I think it's about got the that creamy, fruity yep. mix. Yep, it's the yeah. Dan and fruit-the-bottom cup uh, yogurt. They were the originators. And yeah, yeah, it's so simple, but it's just pure joy. And, and for me, it's... Um, that's what these wines really evoke is this this connection of of love and also just joy. And um, so for me, the rosé becomes this complex experience and expression that has a ton of structure, but also is so rewarding. Every time you take a sip, there's a little saltiness at the back end, too. After I've taken a sip now, that jam has subsided and I'm getting salty. Um, I'm getting a little bit more of the croissant and the baked brioche. Um, but it, it's... Um, it's a fun transition from smelling to tasting and then to swallowing. And you've got this emo range of emotion that, that washes over you that I expect every time I open a bottle of wine, let alone a bottle of champagne. And so it's, it's really All right, cool. One last thing. So we talked yep. about the Brut Reserve and we talked about champagne in general. And we talked about your favorite wine and food pairing. Do uh -huh. rosé wines pair with stuff a little different than the regular wines? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, is there a little more finesse that maybe you want to eat what with it? So I would go something richer, honestly. I think rosé has a structure and, and uh, tannin component to it because of the red still wine that we add. So you can throw, you know, your, your game meats at it. You can throw a steak at it. And as I said, you can have a cigar with it even because there's a lot yeah. of tannin in a cigar. So you want something that can break down the acidity and structure in this wine goes with anything that you could probably pull out of the kitchen. So pork chop. You know, uh, yep. some spice. Uh, yep. Have some fun with it. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree with all that. So that's the Charles Heidsick um, Brut Reserve, Brut Rose Reserve. And yes. the reason I ask people to bring their wines and talk about them on the show is if those descriptions and recommendations don't get you crazy to try, you know, some of these wines and some of these pairings, you're just not yep. paying attention. All right, Philippe, we got to wrap up. That was over an hour. Amanda's going to yell at me because I went over yeah. time, but I couldn't help it. Um, let me do a quick wrap up and I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grape That's Sam at the grape Subscribe to the grape nation podcast 
podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, a little trickier, we're at Ask Ben Ruby. And on Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. But you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. As I mentioned, we'll post Philippe's wine list and the wines that we tasted during the show on social media. Usually on Mondays or Tuesdays, I do the uh, wine list, and I will list stuff uh, and the other social stuff. Uh, Philippe, two things. If we want to follow you and we want to follow the brand, where do we go? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as Nixom, N-I-Q-U-E-S-O-M-M, on Instagram and on Twitter. Twitter. And then as far as our winery, we're Charles Heidsick Champagne at Instagram and on Twitter. H-E-I-D-S-I-E-C-K. Yeah, Charles Heidsick. If you find me, you're going to find the winery, trust me. Right. Now, uh, (laughs) am I correct in assuming I couldn't figure out where Nixom came from? Is that Oceanique? That's from Oceanique, you know. So that's really an old school handle, man. You were in early. Yeah, I, I started early and, and it couldn't change it. But um, just just wanted to really say thank you so much, Sam, for, for, for spending some time with me. What an absolutely historic day to drink a bottle of champagne together. So thank I you know. So much. We didn't even get into that. That's all. <laughs> just, just, just so everyone knows, Philippe and I are talking on the day of Joe Biden's inauguration. Yes. And... Um, Whatever your politics are, the transition of power, the peaceful transition, the inauguration day is a big celebration. And yes, yeah. I agree with you, Philippe, that I uh, couldn't think of a better guy and a better drink. So kudos to that, too. Um, I want to thank our guest, Philippe Andre. He is the U.S. ambassador, brand ambassador for Champagne Charles Heitzig. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.